Before we start, I want listeners to know that the information provided during the program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult with your health care provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. As a mom with firsthand experience, the opinions expressed in this episode are those of my own and do not reflect the views of Providence. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Let's get back to the show. Welcome, everyone, to the Do Tell Mama podcast. I'm your host, Julie Alexandria. And this is my story. Now, when I first came up with the idea for the Do Tell Mama podcast, I figured, well, I'm going to start with my story because this is the whole reason I wanted to do this podcast, because I was completely taken aback and blown away by becoming a mom and being pregnant and what childbirth entailed and my experience as a whole. So I wanted to talk to doctors and doulas and nurses and midwives and find out exactly what this all means. And what I found was really interesting. Among other things, I discovered that I kind of was a little nervous to tell my story. So I kept pushing it and kept pushing it. So here we are, episode 10. And under my contract, it states, I have to share my story. So I am going to do it. And it is a bit of a cautionary tale. I'm not going to lie. So if you listen to my story, you may not want to have kids. Just kidding. Not really. But I'm just going to be real. I'm going to lay it all out for you. And I'm going to tell you every little grisly detail. Because here's the thing. We're not talking about it. I mean, we're just starting to talk about it. What childbirth means. What it means to be a mom. What the transition means. What postpartum is. These are things that I really had no idea about going into it. And mind you, I will take full responsibility for the fact that I really didn't do a lot of research. And we'll get into that in just a bit. The ups and the downs of that. But at the same time, I really didn't want to know. And I kind of went into this experience blindly. And I was really surprised with what I found. So let's go ahead and start from the beginning. You know, I was never really a baby person. I was never one of those girls who would see a young family or a baby or a little kid out in the wild and say, oh my gosh, what a cute baby, can I hold it? If anything, I kind of slinked away from all of that and I lived for 15 years in New York City as a young and fabulous single person. I didn't even watch the show Sex and the City because, excuse me, hi, that was my life and I was living it. I was Carrie and Samantha and Charlotte and Miranda and Big all rolled into one. Thank you very much. So here's a story for you that kind of sets the tone for this episode. I was in a coffee shop with a very good friend of mine. And she looks across the coffee shop to a couple tables down from us. And she says, oh, look at that baby. Aren't they so cute? And I looked over. I saw the baby. And then I looked back at my friend and I said, Do you know how much that thing poops? By the way, I didn't use the word poop. But hey, you might be listening to this in the car with your kids in the back, so just know that I'm aware. So like I said, that pretty much sums up my relationship to motherhood and babies in general. Now, like I mentioned, 15 years in New York City, living as young, fit, and fabulous. And if I had friends that got married and had kids, well, they just moved away. Because let's face it, it's expensive to live in New York City and you need a little more space. And they were never heard from again. 
And I really didn't make the effort to go out and seek out my friends who had had kids. I never really made the effort or took the time to go call them or just pick up the phone, see how they were doing, or God forbid, get on the Long Island Railroad or New Jersey Transit and take a mode of transportation outside of New York City to go and see them and visit their new baby. And for that, I am really sorry. By the way, I went on a whole apology tour after I had Kingston, my 16-month-old now, and I apologized to all of the mom friends who had left that I never took the time to acknowledge. Well, society only validates women when they get married and have babies. And it's too bad because there are far too many conversations at the Thanksgiving and Christmas dinner tables that sound a little something like this. So, Jenna, how's it been going? Oh, really good, Auntie Lane. Um, yeah, really good. Actually, I just sold my company and I have been mentioned in a wonderful write-up, actually on the cover of Forbes 40 Under 40, and I'm buying a new penthouse apartment, you know, the one that was just in the New York Times, the new building that's going up on 57th and Park. Yeah, I got the penthouse. So uh, before I move in, I'm just going to take a little time to um, tour the world, do a little traveling, and I'll be speaking at the new the UN on Wednesday. Oh, well, that's nice, but no boyfriend? No, no, no boyfriend there? No, not dating? No, Auntie Lane, I, um, I've just been really busy and uh, I really put all of my effort into my work, so I really haven't had the time. Oh, oh, that, that's too bad then. You know, I mean, you're not getting any younger. Sound familiar? Yeah, trust me, I get it. I had had far too many of those conversations. In fact, it was really towards the end of just dating my now husband before we got engaged that I had experienced one too many of those conversations. The first one being, well, the first of many being a conversation with my new doctor. I had picked up and left New York City in 2016 and moved to San Diego. And of course, in doing so, I had to find a new doctor. So my new OBGYN sat me down after our appointment and said, so have you given much thought to your fertility? Because, you know, the clock is ticking. She then proceeded to hand me a whole bunch of papers that outlined fertility testing and ways to predict how many eggs that I would have. I brought this paperwork home to my now husband and he said, this is ridiculous. I mean, these procedures just started at $350 and no, insurance didn't cover it. It was not too much later that we were at a Super Bowl party when one of his friend's wives, who was in her late 40s and had three grown successful kids, asked me, so do you want kids? Um, yeah, I said, I mean, at some point. <laughs> well, you better get on it, she said. You're not getting any younger. <laughs> this also led to tears, so thank you very much. And to all those who ask people that don't have kids and women in their 30s who don't have kids and maybe want them, please don't ever say that. It's just never a good idea. So my <laughs> my boyfriend at the time, who is now my husband, told me not to worry and that it would all be okay. Well, a few months later, he proposed. This takes us to November of 2017, and we agreed upon that proposal that, hey, we were just going to pull the goalie and we were just going to go for it because you never know how long these things take. And hey, we were a little bit older, so why not just go for it? 
Well, not two months later, in January of 2018, after having some severe bouts of major thirst, I was so thirsty, and that's what I remember most about it. I was so thirsty, and I also really wanted an In-N-Out burger. Those were my first key indicators that, yep, I was pregnant. Well, I proceeded to have one of the most amazing pregnancies, I think, comparatively, as I compare notes with other mom friends of mine, it was very easy. So much so that sometimes I would forget I was even pregnant. Other than my expanding waistline, I really didn't notice that much of a difference. No nausea, no back pain, and I went around and about as business as usual. I ended up working up until the very last days of my pregnancy. I remember being in studio for ESPN on a Monday, and I ended up going to labor and had my baby on a Thursday. Now, that is not to say that I had to be under extra careful watch by my doctors because I am part of that distinguished group that they call AMA, or Advanced Maternal Age, or Geriatric Pregnancies. Yep, all these wonderful words that they use for women who are over the age of 35. It is astounding. So that leads to a different track when it comes to pregnancy. You have to go in for way more testing and of course for good reason. They want to keep an eye on you and the fetus and make sure that everything is coming along. It also means you have to do a lot of testing in the beginning. Now being of Jewish descent, I knew that there were a lot of genetic, shall we call them issues there? So we had to undergo genetic testing. Now through this process, I found out that I was a carrier for a very, very rare disease. Now, it didn't mean I had the disease because I made it past the age of two. This particular disease, I can't even pronounce it, um, but it basically had a 90% mortality rate for babies over the age of two years old. For fatality rate? Fatality rate. Basically, that the child would not make it past two years old. That's what it meant. And it was very scary. And if my husband was a carrier, our child would have a 25% chance of having this disease, which included muscle failure and then eventually death after the age of two, which is terrible and awful. So we had to go to the second round of testing and my husband had to be tested as he is also half Jewish. And luckily, he was not a carrier. Now, you get to learn a lot when you go a little bit beyond the whole 23andMe genetic testing, and that's something that they take very seriously when you are over the age of 35. Um, but to move on, so the pregnancy was great, everything was fine, up until the last two weeks. So let's get down to the nitty gritty. Here we are, it's a Thursday. I had just worked for ESPN on TV. I taped three shows on a Monday. I was also hosting the Future of Health podcast for Providence St. Joseph Health in Los Angeles, and everything was going fine. Well, I went in for an appointment, I got checked, and my water broke. I was two weeks away from my due date, and my water broke. My doctor gave me the option of either going home and taking a little bit and waiting until contractions started and labor started, or if I wanted to go straight to the hospital. You know those books, those choose your own adventure books where like each decision has a major effect on the end story? This was one of those moments. I should have gone to the hospital. And this is my word of, of awareness and warning to any of you who are thinking of uh, becoming pregnant. If your water breaks, go to the hospital. Like, just 
go to the hospital <laughs> as soon as you possibly can. That was my first big mistake. Um, and also had uh, huge consequences down the line, but we'll get to those in a minute. Um, one of the reasons that my water broke so early was low pressure in the area. Something, again, I was not aware of. It had been raining. Now, mind you, I live in San Diego. Rare Rain is very, very rare. It was raining, and that makes low pressure in the atmosphere. And because of that, uh, the water for women, if you are pregnant, you have a higher chance of it breaking. So when it happened in the doctor's office, she said, this is so strange. You're the third person today that this has happened to. And I thought, oh, that's so crazy. And and I said, you know, I've taken a few classes and they always urge mothers to stay at home as long as possible because if you go into the hospital too early, they're just going to turn you away if you're not in active labor. And so I said, you know, I'm just going to go home. And she said, okay, well, call me at 5 p.m. Mind you, this was 2 o'clock in the afternoon. She said, call me at 5 p.m., so three hours from now, and let me know how you're doing. And I'll give you further direction. And I said, okay. So I went home. I called at 5 p.m. Contractions had not started. I felt fine. In fact, I ended up going for a beach walk with my husband. And we held hands, as cheesy as that sounds, and we just walked on the beach and we took in that moment knowing that this was the last time that it was just going to be the two of us. And from here on out, we were going to be a family of three. So it was really lovely. We also got some Thai food because I thought, let the spice kind of start my labor and let's get it going. But nothing really happened. So I called my doctor. I left a message and I said, everything's fine. Um, water's broken and I'm just chilling. I'm sitting on my birth ball. I had some spicy Thai food. And if this is early labor, well, psh, dude, I got this. <laughs> oh, little did I know. Well, I never got a call back from my doctor. The evening passed. I went to bed, woke up the next morning around 9 a.m., Still no call from the doctor and still no contractions. I thought, well, I think we're supposed to be close, but hospital bag is packed. I'm ready to go at any moment. It wasn't until 11 a.m. when we got a call from one of the CEOs of the hospital who happened to be friends with my husband who called and said, where are you? And we said, well, we're, we're at home. Nothing's changed. My status is the same. I don't feel any discomfort. Um, maybe I'm going to be able to skate through this labor unscathed. And she said, get your butts in the hospital. Your water already broke. She was made aware of this fact from my charts, having looked at my paperwork. My doctor had been in surgery the night before. And who knows, things get busy. But I had no idea that I was supposed to be in the hospital. We packed the bag, we packed the car, and we drove to the hospital. Get to the hospital, I get checked. Cervix is not even dilated more than an inch. So nothing's really progressing. And they said, we may have to start Pitocin. And I thought, mm, no, I had this whole birth plan laid out. I really didn't want to be medicated if I could help it. So, like clockwork, just about 10 minutes later after they checked me, the contractions came hard and they came fast. In fact, they came so hard and fast, I didn't even have a chance to breathe in between them. 
It was incredibly excruciatingly painful. I couldn't walk, and my dreams of just walking around with an IV or being able to dance in the hospital hallways like those YouTube videos? Yeah, not happening. Well, fast forward for another half of the day, and in the evening, I had progressed to seven centimeters unmedicated. At this point, my doula had been called in, which, by the way, the hospital has this wonderful doula program. It still costs you $1,000 to have one, Um, but she was at my side, really wasn't able to help much. My poor husband wasn't able to do much either, and we just had to wait for the progression. The contractions were so bad that I was vomiting and was completely unable to walk and was barely able to sit up on all fours on the hospital bed. It was then that I had to tap out. It was just too much. It was too painful and I was ready for the epidural. I could barely sit still during the implementing of the epidural because it was so painful. But once it set in, Oh boy, what a difference. And I was actually able to watch the playoff baseball that was on the TV in my hospital room. Red Sox game. I'll never forget it. Well, it was then that my doula said, I have a personal emergency. I have to go. And she left. She never apologized for that. And personally, I still take it personally. It was then that she called in a backup. So the backup doula came. And it was kind of at that point that things started to go downhill. Well, the epidural was working for now. I had finally made it to 10 centimeters. And by midnight, they said, okay, it's time to start pushing. So here we are at midnight. It's just turning in from Thursday to Friday. Four hours of active labor and pushing with the assistance of a vacuum that did not work. Apparently they said the baby had too much hair and so the suction did not catch the head of the baby. So it wasn't able to affix itself and it kept sliding off. They said there's not enough room. So I had to get an episiotomy, which is really awful. (laughs) Of course you don't feel it because you do have the epidural, but it's certainly something I did not want but something that they just went ahead and did because there really was no other option. Well, here we are. It's about 4 a.m. on Friday, and nothing's happening. The baby's heart rate has started to drop, and my doctor, I can tell, is getting frustrated and very nervous. The cord was around his neck, and she said, we're just going to have to do an emergency C-section. Now, these were the words that fired me up. I was exhausted. She looked at me and said, I think you're tired and we're going to have to go to the OR. At that point, I mustered everything in my body. And in my mind, I thought, how dare you? Because don't you tell me that I'm tired. I can do this. And in my mind, I made a mental pact with this baby. And I said, we're going to do this. I said, please, please just give me one more chance. I can do this. I know I can do this. Please. And she looked at me and she stood up and she said, okay. But I knew she was already getting that OR prepped. I had heard so many horror stories about C-sections and I was so afraid of surgery. I've never even as much as broken a bone. So I certainly didn't want to go there. I really wanted to have this baby as naturally as I possibly could. So one more push, actually 
it was really kind of like three more pushes and I got him out I got him out I did it I got him out Kingston Jet Horowitz he was born that early morning on Friday October the 6th well they took him away and they cleaned him up they put him on my chest I got to have that skin-to-skin moment with him and then they quickly took him back away and they said something's not right of course that's the last thing you want to hear but I was so far gone in that moment and so exhausted for having actively pushed for four hours they said it's basically equates to running a marathon (laughs) let's just get something straight people I don't even like to work out and that might have been part of the problem why my labor was so long (laughs) but here I was having run a four-hour marathon and I was exhausted so they took the baby away with absolutely no objection from me There was a whole bunch of doctors standing around because they had all been called in because they knew that something was wrong. I didn't find out until much later. Well, then my doctor said, okay, you've got a lot of tearing, so we're going to have to start the repair. At this point, my epidural had failed. It was the cause of a faulty catheter that led into the spinal column which is where the needle goes in and lets all of the um, anesthesia in and they started to sew me up and I said ah I can feel that (laughs) what are you doing and then the anesthesiologist who was standing by kind of turned me on my back and he said oh and he picked up the broken catheter and he said this is why it was then that my doctor said we need to take her into the ER the damage is too much (laughs) The damage is too much, right? The damage is too great, and she has to have post-op surgery for all of the tearing. Great. Turned out I had three tears, including a urethral tear. <laughs> Lovely. So they rolled me into the OR. They gave me more anesthesia and something to calm my nerves. Later on, I was told that the anesthesiologist asked me, so did you get to watch any of the playoff baseball game? And I said to him under a lot of anesthesia, I don't remember this, by the way. I said to him, no, I was a little bit busy if you couldn't tell. <laughs> still a smart, I was going to say something, but I won't. Uh, still a smarty pants, even when under anesthesia. Well, it wasn't until about 8 a.m., Friday morning when I came out of the OR after many stitches later, And I came to in the hospital room. My baby was nowhere to be found. He was in the NICU, also recovering from a very tough ordeal. Well, during the time that I was in the operating room getting repaired again, like Humpty Dumpty, um, they had figured out that Kingston was born. He came into this world with an infection but they didn't know what kind of infection. They just knew that his white blood count, white blood cell count was off the charts. So he came into this world fighting an infection. On the low end of the spectrum, it could have been pneumonia, they said. On the severity and the severe end of the spectrum, it could have been spinal meningitis. They weren't sure, and to this day, we still don't know. But it was all a cause, and it was all traced back to the fact that my water had broken and 
some sort of bacteria or microbe had gotten in there because when the sack of waters is broken, that's the protective sack around the baby. And when that breaks, they are susceptible to anything. Now, was this a cause of being checked and, you know, fingers and gloves being put up there to check the service to see how cervix to see how many centimeters it was dilated maybe um who knows we we still don't know but he ended up staying in the NICU for seven days he was on a steady course seven day course of antibiotics which completely killed his gut and his microbiome I mean you know what happens when you take antibiotics they kill all of the good and the bad bacteria for this little baby he was just depleted his immune system was depleted. So I woke up that Friday morning to my doctor telling me everything that had transpired since I had been put out. I had compression um, weights around my legs because I had furious edema, which is when your legs swell up. And this is because I was being pumped full of fluids because I had started the epidural at seven centimeters so I had had the epidural for so long and was being pumped full of fluids and then being put under in the operating room I had um, incredible swelling because of this I couldn't walk for about a month (laughs) great Um, I know my my feet were the size of sausages it was incredible my poor husband who was not taken care of or uh, given any direction after the baby had been taken to the ER, I'm sorry, to the NICU and I had been taken to the OR, he was left alone. He was left alone in that birthing room. And I think back to all of those nurses that could have taken him out to the waiting room or something, but he was sitting there in a bloody birthing room by himself. And I will never forget that because I felt terrible that he was made to sit there by himself and had no idea what had happened to his wife and had no idea what had happened to his baby. Anyway, that's something that I've had to reconcile is the anger and regret that I feel towards the staff after everything that transpired during this birth. But we'll get to how I dealt with that in a little bit. I stayed in the hospital for three days because I couldn't walk and because the baby was in the NICU and I had to transport as much as I could breast milk um, that I was trying to pump or attempting to pump in the hospital room at all hours whenever I could down to the NICU. Seeing that little baby in that glass or plexiglass little bed was the hardest thing and thinking about it even now makes me so emotional because all you want to do is hold that little thing and we couldn't he was tied up to so many machines and had all of these leads and ivs the poor little guy and so i ended up going home three days later i still couldn't walk i laid on the couch and basically set up my area or I could pump and also sit up on the couch and be in the main room where we live. And I pretty much lived there for about the first month and a half postpartum. 
every day at 7 a.m. we would get up and we would go to the NICU and we would spend all day with little Kingston and we would hold him and take turns and Jeremy my husband would lay there with his shirt off so that the baby could also have skin-to-skin contact with him and we were there we sang to him we spoke to him we wanted him to hear our voices and feel our touch and be familiar with us he was born with a full head of hair he had this black shock of hair (laughs) which the nurses when they finally were able to bathe him it sort of poofed out like a big spikes everywhere and that's how I remember him the most (laughs) you know having a baby in the NICU does have its upsides it is the most incredible daycare and the most expensive daycare and the most amazing daycare that money can buy But it also gave us as parents some time to go home and to not have to worry about waking up at all hours because it was kind of a nine to five. You wake up and you go visit the baby and then you come home and you get a full night's rest. So if there is a silver lining to having a child in the NICU, it's that. And it's that you also know that your baby is getting the best possible care. Shout out to all of the NICU nurses all over the world because you do incredible work and they are angels all of them they called Kingston a flyby because he was born at seven pounds one ounce and at 20 inches long there were other babies who may not have been as lucky they were in the rooms next door to us and you really realize just how precious life is when you are in that NICU with other families because you don't know what anyone else is going through. He's a flyby because he was only there for a week. His next door neighbor, Haley, she was there going on three months. We took Kingston home after seven days because of all of the antibiotics he was given He developed thrush, and so he was really never able to properly latch and breastfeed. Thrush is basically a yeast infection. It's an overgrowth of candida and bacteria in the mouth um, that makes it very difficult for the baby to intake breast milk. And he also spreads it to the nipple. So as he was trying to feed, The candida also spread, and then the mother and the baby pass it back and forth. It's absolutely awful, and it makes it very painful for the baby to feed. So then that means you have to wash each pump and each part and each bottle twofold because you have to sterilize it. So we were doing double and triple the work. They say pumping is doing double the work. It is because you have to do it every two to three hours. So the minute you stop pumping, you have to figure out to wash and sterilize and then before you know it you got to do it again so it made leaving the house very difficult which also bummed me out a lot I certainly suffered from a lot of the post baby blues the new mom blues I mean I would hear a song come up while we were sitting having you know just laying with the baby and I would just start crying You know which one would really get me was the uh, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, but the ukulele version? Oh, forget it. Forget it. But when I think about it, I think my postpartum 
issues may have started even during pregnancy because I remember receiving gifts early on in my pregnancy and if I would get a onesie or like a stuffed animal for the baby, I would just start crying and I was so emotional. I remember once getting a card with, and and it was a card from like a friend of my mom's, like not even uh, from like a, a close friend. I don't know if that would have made any difference, but it was given to me by a friend of a friend, just innocuous card, just a very, you know, sweet congratulations on your pregnancy and your upcoming baby. And it was a little bear who was asleep on a moon, on a, on a crescent moon. And I looked at it and I thought, oh, look at the little bear. He's asleep on a moon. And I just lost it. And I would start crying like I was just so emotional. So I, I had this rule. I wasn't going to open any gifts unless it was my shower. I wasn't going to open any gifts before the baby came because I honestly couldn't even handle it. I was too emotional. So some women go through this and it starts as early as pregnancy we hear of postpartum depression or postpartum mood anxiety or postpartum mood disorder but it sometimes happens as soon as conception who knows it's different for everyone so going back to the postpartum it was certainly difficult and they say that there is a higher risk of postpartum for moms over the age of 35 as well as a risk for a myriad of other things but that was one of the things that I certainly felt and I definitely went through that postpartum moment where I thought I have to protect this baby because what if something terrible happens to him and of course sometimes you have those invasive intrusive thoughts and I did my best to to try and think positively and not think about those things. And it was something that I did think about getting help for, but at the time it was honestly too much for me to even leave the house. The thought of going to a therapy session was too overwhelming for me at the time. And I thought, I'm just going to stay here. I'm going to stay here in this little cocoon with my sterilized pump parts and this little baby and I'm going to figure this out. And it was hard. And you know that saying, it takes a village to raise a baby? It's because it does. And back in the day, we did have that. We had that village mentality. We grew up around our moms and our aunties and uncles and our sisters and brothers. And we had that sense of community because we didn't move away. And now, it's not like that. And that's why I truly believe that it is harder now than ever before to raise a child because we don't have that support. Mothers in a village mentality are able to just rest and relax and be on bed rest for two to six weeks after having a baby because you have to recuperate. Your body has to recover. It has just been through so much. And yet we look on social media or on the cover of the gossip magazines in the checkout line at the grocery store and we see women snapping back so fast unbelievably fast unrealistically fast and it's just not realistic it doesn't happen that way but for some reason we have this idea in our minds that oh we pop out a kid back to work because that's what our society is telling us but in reality it takes so much longer to recover mentally, most emotionally, and physically. 
the most important and amazing thing that any of our friends did for us during that time was grocery shop and cook for us. From here on out, that is my gift to all of my friends, is a meal delivery service, because it is the last thing you want to think about after having a baby. Trust me on that one. (laughs) Well, I certainly dealt with a lot of the effects after having a baby. One of the things that I also suffered from was granular scar tissue down there. Yep, this was a basically uh, caused by having had so many stitches and all of the repair work from all of the tearing. Sometimes you get scar tissue. Picture this. Every time you go to use the bathroom to go number one, it burns. And it's not from a UTI. It's because the urine is touching the scar tissue. Granular scar tissue, if you look it up, is basically just a ball of nerves. So when I went in for my first postpartum checkup, I said, something is burning down there and it's not good. And she said, oh yeah, you have scar tissue. So again, to add insult to injury of having one of the most difficult and complicated births, um, I had to get that burned off with uh, the nitrous oxide, the the liquid nitrogen that they, (laughs) not nitrous oxide, liquid nitrogen that they put on it, um, which was also very painful. I mean, there's so much, there's so much that can go wrong. There's so many things you don't think about and there's so many things that we don't talk about. Um, But that is one of the things that happens when you have an episiotomy or when you have a lot of tearing and you have a lot of stitches down there. One of the things I also recommend to anyone um, in the postpartum period is to get a postpartum survival kit and to set it up before you reach postpartum. This is something, again, that I really didn't think of or do the research on, but having those really thick pads and making padsicles, this is something where you take a huge, big old maxi pad and you soak it in aloe vera and witch hazel and then you roll it back up and you put it in a Ziploc baggie and you put it in the freezer. Putting one of those in the mesh underwear when you're healing, pretty awesome. So there's just a little a little tip for you. Also a tip for you, um, get this because here's a bit of information I didn't know. Breast milk is not allowed to be in your carry-on luggage Uh, not allowed to be carried on the plane when you're traveling internationally. I learned this the hard way because I was invited to a wedding when I was still pumping. By the way, I pumped for seven months exclusively because like I mentioned before, Kingston was never able to latch and because of the thrush in his mouth, he was never, we had to stop the breastfeeding and so I just pumped exclusively for seven months. Oh my gosh, it was uh, more work than I've ever done in my life hardest job ever but I was invited to a wedding with my husband it was in Mexico we ended up going I brought all of my pumps and a freezer bag to be able to pump while I was there I had pumped extra so that he would have enough to get through the three days that I was going to be gone and so once I was there and we froze it so he was able to defrost it and have it once I was there I pumped the entire time I didn't drink the entire wedding I actually left the reception so that I could go and pump and saved all of this milk and had a little mini fridge everywhere I went so that I could you know store the milk I took every precaution and thought of everything and we get to the airport and I have all these jugs full of milk and I mentioned it as we put it through security and they said "Uh uh-uh and I said no come on I just pumped for three days straight through a wedding 
I wasn't even able to have a tequila shot. Come on. And they said, nope, cannot have it. And so my husband ran back and wrapped a bunch of tape around the bottles and we checked the bags. (laughs) So if you are flying internationally, just know they will not let you take the breast milk on board with you. Well, I learned so much throughout this entire process. I learned so much interviewing doctors and doulas and midwives through the Do Tell Mama podcast experience. And one of the things that I come away from having learned is that our society is not built for women to be having children later on in life. It's just not. I hate to say this, but it is true that biologically, for the best possible outcome for both mom and baby, women should be having kids between the age of 17 and 27. Let that sink in for a minute. Now, I'm not an advocate for teen pregnancy, don't get me wrong, but biologically, that is when women should be having kids. Is their late teens and early 20s? That's when labor is easiest. That's when pregnancy is easiest. That's when conception is easiest. It's really as we get older that things get tougher and more complications arise. But our society isn't set up that way. It's set up that if you're a woman and you have any dreams and hopes of having a career and any sort of success professionally, you have to get it in early. You can't just tap out and have a baby at 22 and then go back. It's hard to get back in once you lose your foot in the door, especially if you work in the entertainment industry like I do. Forget it. If society could be structured differently to let women have that time to make that choice to have a baby and to cultivate a young family, it would make all the difference in the world to support women so that they could come back and finish out their careers later in life. But unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. And so we see more and more women waiting and putting off having kids. I put it off because it really wasn't a huge priority for me. But looking back on it now, I definitely wish I would have done it earlier. But then I look back at who I was dating at that time and I think, oh man, no, (laughs) no. It's best that I waited to be with the right person. So now Kingston is 16 months old, and here we are. We got through so much, from broken epidurals to granular scar tissue to thrush from the NICU to his first birthday, his first words. He's now running. And one thing that I can't stand when people say is they say, oh, it goes by so fast. Word of advice, never say that to someone who's in the first year of having a baby because it goes by really slow. (laughs) It feels that way anyway. It's like the minutes just tick by because it's so much work. It's so much work and I have so much respect for every mother and father and family out there because... I never knew. I never knew how much work it was. Because again, I really didn't surround myself with people that had young children. But it really does take a village. It is harder now than it ever was before. 
because we don't have those villages. We don't have that support. We're waiting longer to have kids. We are living further and farther away from our families and from our units. And we're sort of starting our families on our own. And a lot of times, both mom and dad have to work in order to make ends meet. And so being a mom, because that's all you're expected to be, doesn't really exist. And that's why collectively, millennial moms, of which I am one, we're all having this collective WTF moment where we're like, whoa, this is this is crazy. Are, are you feeling that this is as crazy as I feel like it is? Because this is nuts. This is so much work. This is so hard because we're balancing and taking on so much. Back in the 1940s and 50s, women would go to high school and then get married right out of high school. Maybe they would go to college and maybe become a secretary, but they, they would get married pretty soon and then they would have kids and that's all they had to do. Not to say that all they had to do, like it's not that much. Of course, it's a lot of work, but when that is your sole job, it is a full-time job. But you don't have to have another job on top of that full-time job. So that's why I wanted to have this podcast and have these discussions because it is harder than it ever was before. Moms are yearning for that community. Moms are yearning for that village. Moms are yearning to be able just to raise their kids and raise their family and let that just be their sole focus. So I don't know what the answer is. I don't know that it's going to get easier, but I do know that sharing the information and letting New moms, moms-to-be, moms that don't want to be, know that they're not alone. And that's what I come away with, was that that feeling was what got me through. <laughs> Listen, I'm not the first woman to have a baby, and I'm certainly not the last. But the feeling when you're in it can be so isolating. So if you see a new mom out there who's struggling with the shopping cart and the groceries and the baby and trying to put it in the car seat. Don't even ask if she needs help. Just say, hey, I, I can close the door. I got this. Because that's the other thing. It's so hard sometimes for us to ask for help. I'd be at the checkout counter and they'd say, do you need help out? And automatically, without even thinking about it, I'd say, nope, I got it. Because we're so used to saying that we're fine when sometimes we're not. Letting a new mom know that you're there to support. Dropping off some food. Knocking on the door and just leaving. Not, not even coming over and having to deal with that, but just getting a bag of groceries. Just that will make so much of a difference. Cooking for someone makes so much of a difference. I realize so many things now that I didn't know before. <laughs> and I do feel empowered by having done all of the research and having really looked into issues that face moms and families and dads and babies today. So I do hope that this is not our last episode on Do Tell Mama. I do hope to keep continuing the conversation because that's what it's about. And know if you are listening to this and you do have a young baby at home, it does get better. It doesn't last forever. And you are not alone. I'm Julie Alexandria.
Thanks so much for listening.